0: If you become a student of American history, nothing necessarily surprises you about where we're at, and it may seem scary. And yes, it is scary, especially when it, in, in regards to the lack of, um, the, the increasing lack of faith in the democratic system and voting, and that fundamentally feels different.
1: Hello my friends, welcome to each and every one of you, I'm Nick LaPara and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play, thank you for showing up this week, and most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Friends, this week's episode is fantastic. I asked Moshe Wanunu to join me on the podcast this week to help us navigate all things news and media, who to trust, how to navigate the 24-hour news cycle, fact versus fiction, the difference between misinformation and disinformation, the utter importance of a free press, and so much more. Moshe Wanunu is an Emmy, Murrow, and Webby Award-winning executive producer. He is one of the leaders helping change the way we think about and consume the news. Moshe is the president of both Mo Digital and Mo News. Before launching Mo Digital, Mo News, Mo News Newsletter, and the Mo News Podcast, Moshe was the youngest ever executive producer of the CBS Evening News in 2018 and 2019, where he led more than 150 personnel and coverage of everything from the war on isis to natural disasters mass shootings and presidential interviews and so much more before that he oversaw the launch of cbsn the first of its kind 24 7 live news network in 2014 for mobile and streaming tv platforms and before that he worked for fox news bloomberg tv And he has done so much more than the aforementioned things, but we have a conversation to get to. If you want to read more about Moshe's life and work after we're finished, check out the show notes for all the links you'll need to accomplish that. Now, before we dive into this conversation, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me at hello to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything goes. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the brilliant Moshe Wanunu. Let's go. Moshe Wanunu, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast.
0: Nick, it is great to be
1: with you. Thank you so much for doing this. People don't know, I just asked you the other day, we had kind of a weird uh, gap this week. One of my guests had to postpone. And it's really timely though, I've been, observing your work for quite some time. And I wanted to make several of the shows leading up to the midterms, either with politicians that carry a variety of views on a variety of very important issues, but also to talk about the news, talk about the media, because so many of us are up to our eyeballs in just frustration and worry and doubt and who to trust and who to listen to as and I, I have listeners all over the world. You, too have listeners and people that watch your content all over the world. But we live in these United States, and we have these very important, you know midterm elections coming up. And things feel a little things feel a little tense right now. Um, uh, I've been watching a selective, you know few a select few uh, debates that have been happening uh, Marjorie Taylor green and the, the Warnock, uh, Herschel debates and just different things to kind of keep, but it's just generally frustrating. And so I was really excited that you responded so quickly and said, yeah, I'm willing to do it because I think our conversation here today will provide, I think some help and some handles for people to have moving forward, not just for the midterms, but moving forward, because this digital landscape that we live in is not going away. It's only going to evolve and increase. Uh, you know the different ways that we take in this information. So again, that was a long introduction, but thank you so much for joining me. I want to also say for those listening and for you, I 15 minutes ago tested negative for COVID for the first time in 12 days. So congratulations! I have been, thank you. I've been in quarantine yeah. in this bedroom that you're seeing in the background for 12 days, which is very hard for an Enneagram Eight, very Type A. Every second I get, I am out of the home walking around, smoking cigars, hanging with people. Like just, I love being out and about. And so these 12 days have been crazy. And uh, yeah, just 15 minutes ago, finally tested negative. So I am, but I wanted to mention that because one of the ways that has affected me as someone who is immunocompromised and has very bad asthma is my breathing is still shit. And so during this conversation, I may have to take uh, a cough break. I may have to stop talking, which some people listening will be very glad for just wanted to warn you that some of the loss of breath is from this crazy thing called covid that i was able to avoid for two and a half years got well, it
0: well you 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 sound great so far
1: nick so thank you thank you how how have you done these last couple of years with uh covid i mean it's been a wild time right oh
0: uh it's why we're talking today yes um cuz i got into the news thing during covid which we can talk about but yeah i mean there was this first couple months when we didn't quite know what the fate of the world was, what this disease was, et cetera. And then um, my wife and I were successfully able to avoid it until the Omicron variant. So that was, what, last December? Last December, yep, about um, a year ago. And uh, But, you know, there are still some, some people like you who have been able to hold into 2023. But I see even the newest variations of uh, Omicron are, are getting to them, Um because I think it's a sub-variant at this point. But I, you know, I think the larger um, the larger lesson from the past two and a half years has really been in a professional context, like doing my own thing. Um, and the fact that the it is normalized remote work, remote relationships. So if I was to put a positive spin on it, like ultimately, like you can if you're so privileged in terms of what you do professionally um it really opens up doors and opportunities and entrepreneurial op- opportunities in a way that i don't recall it feeling um as attainable prior to march 2020
1: yeah i completely agree i again thank you for pointing out that not everybody can do what you do and what i do and what many others do right uh, but for those of us that have been able to swing it and that have the entrepreneurial chops and the kind of go-getter kind of nature about us, yeah, I think one of the positive things has been the, the, the innovation and the imagination that has kind of run wild and like, hey, we've got all these amazing tools. I mean, I hated like pre... I still hate... I still dislike them, but I hate it anytime someone would say, let's get on a video call. I mean, I literally so many times would hop on a plane at my own expense to fly somewhere, to have a two-hour meeting because I valued so much that face-to-face, and I still value that face-to-face. And,
0: and, and, and I think there's still merit to face-to-face. I, that, you know, I, I, I don't think it could be fully replicated by no matter how many Zooms you have.
1: hundred percent, but no. we are much more comfortable in this setting. I mean, relationships have been built, deals have been made, uh, partnerships have been solidified, through video where before that would have just been an uncomfortable sort of setting. And so very glad for, yes, that, but hopefully we continue to crawl our way out of this, this horrid pandemic that, um, yeah, continues to plague so many people. Um, Mm -hmm. okay. Before we talk about your current work and before we talk about the news media landscape, I want to spend a couple minutes figuring out where you came from, the kinds of people, places, and things that made you, because you're doing really incredible work. We'll get into what i believe is the truth that you are one of the people one of those leading us into a a newer better way of consuming the news you're not the only one but you are doing it really 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 well and so but that just doesn't happen by accident that is a lot of things it's it's your own talent that you were born with it's your own skill set that you developed but also the people places and things shape us so give us a few minutes of context for where you came from? Who influenced you? What were the circumstances that kind of made you this curious, articulate uh, uh, storyteller?
0: Well, I appreciate the compliment, Nick. Uh, I, I I hope my story and I hope this podcast will live up to your introduction. Um, it will. So, so the uh, background on me, um, literally, my my. I grew up in the Chicago area, in the Chicago suburbs. My father is originally from Morocco, from Marrakesh, Morocco. Uh, was an immigrant um, cabinet maker, uh, so I grew up in his cabinet shop. Uh, my mom and my father, my mom and my dad worked together. It was a family business. She handled the the bookkeeping um, and kind of the front end office. My dad handled the building of the furniture. Had some folks who worked with him, and so that's like doing custom kitchens and libraries for people and some commercial stuff. And so, th- really, what I saw growing up is you know growing up. In my dad's shop, you know, seeing working with guys who did flooring and painters and drywall and electricians and plumbers, um, you know, the people who build things um, and the people who you know work twelve, fourteen hours a day. Many of them immigrants or first generation, in um, a, a whole diverse cross section of folks. Um, and then my dad got into automotive sales. Uh, sorry, automotive uh, wholesale parts uh, for cars. And so I do, like, delivery runs with him, um, delivering to the... And it's funny, in Chicago, you have, like, the Polish automotive shops, and then you have the Jamaican mechanic shops, and then you have the Russian mechanic shops. And you're going literally down one road, Milwaukee Road, and it's, like, all of them every couple of minutes. And so... And then my mom, on weekends, would work uh, at a hospital doing medical records. So for me, all I witnessed as a child was, you know, you, you work 247... Um, to make ends meet. Um, you don't complain, you appreciate the basics. Uh, you know that you have a roof over your head and you have food, and that education is the key. Um, education is so important to uh, depending on what you want to do. Now part of that was learned. Uh, and part of my passion for news and asking questions, etc, was also, I think nature was innate. Like my, my dad, but my dad likes to tell the story that when I was six years old, we lived above an ice cream shop uh, in Morton Grove, Illinois, and they'd give me a quarter, whatever it was in the late 80s, to buy an ice cream cone. And I'd come back with a copy of the Chicago Tribune. And he's I'd hilarious. Say, Who's, this? Who's this first grader getting the Chicago Tribune? My dad was a curious person. My dad's an incredible uh, storyteller and a uh, comedian. And my parents are both curious people. Uh, you know, I don't think I remember growing up where, you know, a morning news show or evening news show wasn't on in the house um as we ate breakfast and prepared for school. So I asked questions and I was aware, but I think, I, you know, I took a, a real interest in it. And by the age, by first grade, my favorite book was The World Atlas. I was a, memorizing world capitals and flags on my own and then became obsessed with becoming a meteorologist and wrote letters to a local weatherman in Chicago who gave me a tour of the studio. So from a very young age, I knew I wanted to be involved in news in some shape or form
1: i love that and yes def lots of clues there for you know what we see today we share that we are children of immigrants my dad is came from guatemala and um there's something i i don't think that children of immigrants or immigrants are better than everybody else that's not what i'm saying but i am saying that there's something special there there's a special sauce when you have to come into a new place uh, a place that you look different, you act different in many cases, you speak differently, you behave yeah. differently, you eat differently. You are subject to uh, people watching you, ridicule, people you know pushing you out or definitely not bringing you in, inviting you into their circles. and those things made me uh, i i my dad moved here, but then we moved back for ten years. so I spent ten years growing up in Guatemala, ten to nineteen. And then moved back well, then spent a few years traveling the world, then moved back here finally um but yeah, I experienced um uh, a very different upbringing than so many of my friends that have just always been here, right well, not always, but um and i i also do you do you think that that as well contributed to not just seeing your parents work hard, they obviously did, and you know the news being on and them, you know. I assume they didn't make fun of you for bringing home a newspaper instead of ice cream, right? They, you know, they sort of foster that. But beyond that, do you think that- They embraced it, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that beyond that, also being the child of, because there's a lot of working class, you know, white folks that have, again, been here for generations. There's something different with this whole immigrant story. Do you believe that? Do you see that in your own story?
0: A thousand percent. I mean, I, I, I think part of my story is my name, right? Moshe Wanunu. What, where are you from? <clears throat> Excuse me. Where are you from? Uh, what's your story? And I think even learning my own identity and my own family history contributed to my um, uh, my curiosity about the world. You know, my it, it turns out we believe that my family lived for more than a millennia in Morocco. They were Jews. Wow. You know, the, the Jews that got to Morocco, some came from 1492 Spain, but some came from the Roman expulsion in the year 70 A.D., Wow. Um, and then mixed with the Berber tribes, they were there before. You know, it's interesting. You hear the King of Morocco these days, and we can go a whole tangent here. But you know, he's like the Jews got here before the Muslims got here in Morocco. You know, the the um, Islam comes to Morocco in the in the seventh century. Um, the Jews got got there for the first time two thousand years ago, and so it's an interesting story. And so that's you know that's that side. And then on my mom's side, you know my my grandfather and his father, my great grandfather, escaped. Uh, Germany in the mid-30s uh, as Jews initially to uh, Palestine and then eventually to America. And so from both sides, there was a really interesting history there. And, and then when I look at it through a modern lens, it's like, well, these are the countries today. What were the countries back then? How did we get here? And so I think genuinely there, um, by asking questions about my own identity uh, and diving into the history of my myself, why do I exist? How do I exist? Um, several generations going back, that then, I think, reinforced my curiosity about um, day-to-day events. And and what I love about journalism is putting things in the context, in the historical context, that, you know, we're not... It seems like when you watch the news these days, you're coming in in the middle of the movie. The movie started sure. a long time ago. Yep. And the person who may seem good at this point in the movie wasn't good at a previous point in the movie, and, and vice versa. And so explain that context and explain that history. You know, it's like when you explain the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you got to go back a ways, a couple thousand years. Uh, When you explain the Russia-Ukraine, you got to go to more than a thousand years ago, to the beginnings of the Russian Republic and the capital of Kiev, which explains partially the affinity that Russians today still have for the Ukrainian region Uh, and the connection that, you know, even Putin, um, though he convolutes things historically, um, you know, can draw a line. Sure. And all of that all of that is so important, and I think, frankly, just my upbringing, my family
1: history, my story um, reinforced all of that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, again, different parts of the world we come from, but uh, I completely agree that, again, not better than anyone else, but I do have a bigger worldview. I have a broader view of what's happening, and I don't I, I don't know if you feel this. I don't want this to go become a tangent or a rabbit trail, but I don't have, I think, a healthy, I have a healthy lack of allegiance for this country in that I think those of us that have uh, kind of these bigger world views or were children of immigrants or we immigrants. I spent, yeah, I spent 14, 15 years living outside the U S collectively, 30 countries, 10 in Guatemala. I, I respect this country. I like, and maybe even love many things about it, but I don't, because I didn't, because I uh, I have so much history elsewhere, I feel like I can, not always, but I can have a healthier view of what's going on because I don't have that. Like it's been, I, I can't remember the last time I ever, it's frankly, it's really weird to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance and to salute a flag. Like I, I have never done that as far as I know. Maybe I did when I was younger, but I still love it and live here. And I'm not leaving as far as I know. I want this country to be better i want this country to be what i think in so many ways that it's always aspired to be do you feel that as well this kind of like i don't know maybe it's not maybe it's not lack of allegiance i don't know what it is i don't know what to call it Mm. i
0: well i mean i'll i'll just say up front that you know i i love this country i i I wouldn't say i feel a lack of allegiance i i don't think there's any other place um i would rather live nick Mm. than, than america i just think that looking around the world seeing what takes place there yes this country has lots of flaws Yes, this country has a very complicated uh, and, at parts, really rough history. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I try to do is is not sugarcoat it for people, sure. right? Like, it's very interesting when you look at various countries and the way that they look at the sins of their past. You have on, like, one spectrum the Japanese who want to ignore it uh, completely. The, the Chinese are similar in this way. Most countries, frankly. Mm-hmm. The U.S., Um we touch it and we don't want to, you know, spend time on it. And then you have like the Germans who coming out of World War II have had, you know, if you look look at their education system, they spent a lot of time with the next generation on the Holocaust um, and on what the Nazis did. And, you know, awkwardly in America, we look at the greatest generation, the people who won World War II. In Germany, you look at that generation of your grandparents or great-grandparents at this point, and these are the people who are the, you know, were on the Nazi side. Um, what is that like? And so... You know, with all that said, yes, America has its plus. I, I mean, I remember growing up. I stood for the Pledge of Allegiance. It was, you know, it was is what you did. You had the flag, mm-hmm. stood for the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, I remember doing it first grade, second grade, third grade. I think through middle school, they had us do it um, outside Chicago. Um, and so, I love this country. There is no other place that I feel that your story, your family story, and my family story, moving, you know, up to the point where the next generation is, um, I mean, even the, fir- the, the immigrants who arrive here, the, oppor- the, sure. the their ability to climb from the bottom to the top and then their next generation able to climb to the top is not a story that is easily replicated um, in most countries around the world. In most countries around the world, the identity, whether it's French identity or the German identity or the Spanish identity, no matter how many generations you show up there, you will never be French. You will never be um, one of those countries. In America... Right we're hyphenate, right? You arrive here, what are you? Japanese American, Italian American, Guatemalan American, Brazilian American. Uh, wh- you know, whatever you show up immediately, there is this embrace. And so, you know, if, uh, for Team America here, uh, just for one second, just like, that's not possible. Now, we have our issues, yes. But I think, you know, to your point, like, we need to continue to grow and, and. Uh, Reform the things that are broken, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm, I look, you know, like I'm constantly reading the news and the headlines and studying the history of countries around the world, and, you know, I think we're in a very complicated point in history in our country. Um, I'm optimistic that we will get through it because we have a very entrepreneurial. Uh, open-minded country that I know at its core um, can get there. You know, it reminds me of the Winston Churchill quote, which is something of the line uh, that you can always depend on America to do the right thing after it's done all the wrong things. (laughs) Something along those lines. But basically, you can always depend on America to be there for you after they've done everything else.
1: Yeah, I I appreciate that perspective and I do it's I mean it's one of the reasons why I'm still here honestly because we've had chances to leave and we've yeah. frankly at certain points have checked out other countries and places and you know even initiated those moves. But I do believe I agree with you. As frustrating as this place is to live in, especially right now and we'll get into some of that here in a minute, like as frustrating as it is to live here in so many ways and to navigate all of the issues that we're navigating, the the, the very fact that certain politicians and ideas are even like they're viable candidates in this next midterms, like with the craziness that they're spouting, yeah. like t- it's so frustrating to me. But I, I agree with you that there is something special here. And I, I think I can say that on some authority, having traveled to 30 ish countries and seeing, and this, these are really very developed countries and very underdeveloped countries alike. There is something special here. And I hope it wins. I hope that special sauce wins. I hope that after we've messed up, Enough times, and really, like, maybe we even have to destroy our current way of living, like the, everything. Maybe everything has to like topple, and what we rebuild is the spec is the really special sounds, thing. I don't sounds know. Sounds like you're
0: running for president, Nick. That was the Bernie oh. Sanders, uh, Donald Trump uh, philosophy of 2016. I mean, that's where we've sort of gotten. But listen, this uh, this country has an ugly side, right? Like, yeah, we, you know, like it's an isolationist bent is nothing new. A national bent is nothing new. You're right. Um, you know, like, ultimately, I, I had the good fortune of interviewing Ken Burns recently, who has new... Um, Amazing. Um, yep. A, a new a new PBS series on the U.S. and the Holocaust. And what he gets at in that series is that he really dives into the U.S. in the 1920s and 30s. Yes. And, and I would recommend it for anybody who wants to know more about this country's history. On where, you know, like, you look at today's America and you're like, oh, we sort of resemble 100 years ago. Like, economy, you know, like by the 1920s, we'd allowed in so many immigrants that the existing population felt like we should close the door on them. Um, Really restrictive laws get passed. There's this feeling of like, yeah, some bad stuff's happening over in Europe, but like, I don't want them living here. Um, You you also find out that partially that Hitler was inspired by what we did to the Native Americans in this country, that when he was looking at living space in Eastern Europe, he was looking at, at America and he alludes to this in Mein Kampf, like, look how America created all this living room for them by pushing the, the Natives out. And so when Amer- when American diplomats in the 1930s were um, going after Germans being like, what are you doing to the Jews? What are these laws? He'd be like, what do you do to the Native Americans? And what are your laws in the South and Mississippi in regards to Blacks um, in terms of uh, separate spaces? Right. And, yep. uh, and so, you know, he gets at, you know, some of the, the ugly side of American history that existed just a couple generations ago. And so, and we know this, we, you know, if you're a student of history and you know what took place here in the fifties and sixties and seventies, it's a constant progression. Um, but you know, I, I think that, you know, if you, if you become a student of American history, nothing necessarily surprises you about where we're at. And it may seem scary, um, but put into, and, and yes, it is scary, especially when in, in regards to the lack of, um. The, the increasing lack of faith in the democratic system and voting and that fundamentally feels different than previous times but if you look at you know the 200 plus years we're we're going to celebrate 250 year our 250th birthday soon nick in 4 years right yep in 2026 if you look at 246 years of american history um there are many elements that continue they're sort of thematic they come back they come back in different forms but even immigrants like the immigrants come in and they close the door on the next immigrants and like if you look at um, you know, like the, the issues that the Chinese immigrants faced in the late 1800s, the Italian immigrants and what they faced. If you look at the caricatures in in newspapers, the racist caricatures of Italian immigrants who were coming in and the Eastern European immigrants who were coming in. And then, you know, you just replicate that for the Latino immigrants who are coming, you know, like no matter what group comes in, they face the same issues, the same issues. And by the second and third generation, they've established themselves, you know, for the most part in this country And they start to vote more conservative. And and it's interesting because I'm watching the trend line now. We're watching the trend line right now with a bunch of the communities from Latin America that have come in and we're multiple generations in. And they start kind of, you know, with whatever the more pro, you know, immigration party is and then make their moves being like by the second, third generation, they're like, no, no, we're closing the door. Who are these new people coming in? Right, right. It's a theme that continues and continues,
1: you know, through the decades. Okay, before we go on, because I want to get into uh, different things that will help people navigate the news and media more. But before, uh, people need to know why you're an authority on this. So could you, in a few minutes, kind of summarize your career, the things that you've done, uh, very impressive, and kind of lead up to your departure from all that to go out on your own in 2019? Why did you do that? What are you building? What do you hope to accomplish with it? Sure. So uh, the quick story from buying the Chicago Tribune
0: as a six-year-old with my ice cream money Um Ended up, um, you know, try, I was trying to start like a middle school newspaper, was the editor of my high school newspaper um, outside Chicago at Stevenson High School, uh, then went to school at GW in Washington, um, where I was either going to go into politics or journalism, uh, sort of grew up in the 90s, uh, being partially inspired by West Wing. I was like, I got to go to D.C., I got to go change yeah. the world like Martin Sheen tells me to on Thursday nights on, a, on NBC. Wednesday nights. I forget. They had a couple of TV nights there back in the day. And so uh, go to GW, uh, become the editor of the college newspaper there. Um, and what's unique about GW is like you're literally on one side, you're four blocks from the White House. And the other side, you're three blocks from the State Department. And so you're a college campus newspaper, but you're covering like Condi, you know, like at the time I was there in 2000, 2004. So it was like Condi Rice is speaking on campus. Dick Cheney is speaking on campus. Colin Powell is here. You know, it was the height of uh, just post 9-11, sophomore year, uh, my first week, first day of my internship for Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois was 9-11. Wow. We evacuated the Capitol that morning. And eventually make my way back to campus and then suddenly the campus newspaper is like, where are you? And I'm like, you're right. This is a news story. I should be covering this. And so I'm covering, for the camp- I'm covering 9-11 for the campus newspaper, right? And, you know, then you have like the lead up to the war in Iraq, et cetera. So I'm on, on a college campus covering journalism in Washington as like, we are going through fundamental changes, Right. And so do that, get a first job. I give do a couple internships um, with ABC News and then Fox News and get a job for Chris Wallace as his researcher on Fox News Sunday. And for those unfamiliar, you know, Wallace, son of Mike Wallace, um, Chris has spent years at, at ABC News, uh, NBC, and then comes over to Fox to host the Sunday show. And this is pre-Twitter, pre-social media. This is still where if you wanted to make news in Washington and you were a prominent politician, you had to go on a Sunday show, meet mm-hmm. the press. ABC this week, Fox News Sunday. And we would be like, are you going to make news? Yeah, I'm going to drop something. I'm going to announce a new piece of legislation. And this is the world we lived in, free Twitter. And this is not that long ago. This is 2005. Right. And so I would prepare him, you know, I'd prepare research for interviews. So we're going to have Don Rumsfeld on. Give me all the data on like what's happening in the war in Iraq. Then tell me what he's going to say about it. And then let's figure out how to to push back on it. Um, And so it really prepared me fundamentally for like how to ask questions. Um, and most importantly, do your research. Do your homework. You're gonna have Mitch McConnell on. Tell me like where he's from and like what he's pushing now. What was he saying about this type of legislation when Democrats were pushing it ten years ago, et cetera? So really diving into that. So I did that for a couple of years, and then Fox gave me an opportunity to be a, a campaign embed. And so there's a hand, a couple dozen people get to do this every campaign cycle for the various networks and newspapers, and uh, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, ABC, CNN, et cetera. They will assign a person to literally kind of live on the campaign bus with a candidate. So I did that initially for the Rudy Giuliani presidential campaign for four wow. months. And then, and then um, uh, lo and behold, that was a, a flop. And then they assigned me to the McCain campaign, who was the Republican nominee in 08. So spent 10 months uh, covering John McCain nearly every day of 2008. I spent with John McCain alongside my fellow uh, embedded reporters from ABC and NBC and CNN and, and the LA Times and the Washington Post. Um, and so cover that campaign cycle and see politics really up close. From there, covered Capitol Hill for about six months. Um, this is the beginning of the Obama administration. Um, and those first uh, six months of Obama, when like we were trying to bring the country back from the financial collapse of 08, um, I then get a job running international news coverage at Bloomberg Television in New York, where I'm overseeing international finance coverage for Bloomberg TV. So that's covering this kind of recovery from 08, but like in a global context. But then you have questions like, is the Greek economy going to collapse? Is the Italian economy going to collapse? Dubai is collapsed. They're getting a bailout. Um, The Fukushima nuclear meltdown, how is that affecting our global supply chain? So you're viewing this through the lens of the people who watch Bloomberg television, who are the CEOs and traders who are trading on economic news. And what I loved about Bloomberg is like, it's just the facts. Hmm. Like, Traders don't have time for opinions. They have time for like what's going to happen, and give me on a factual basis, like, like what 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 is this argument and what is that argument? Because I have to make huge financial bets and huge acquisition choices and 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 all of these decisions based on information. I then uh, follow Boston CBS News, where they're launching a morning show in 2011 into 2012. They're relaunching the CBS Morning Show at the time. Uh, we end up doing it with Charlie Rose and Gail King as kind of a more news-based morning show. And they send me back to Washington to oversee DC coverage for the morning show. So that's, you know, ensuring CBS News network coverage for the morning from the White House, Capitol Hill, CIA, you know, Justice Department, State Department, uh, etc., and so I did that for a couple of years. They brought me back to New York to uh, oversee the launch of the digital streaming channel at CBS because by 2014, things have evolved. We have this thing called Roku, this thing called Apple TV. CBS has never done a 24-hour channel. We have 60 minutes and a Sunday show and a, and a, an a evening show. But like, we need a 24-hour channel. Most figure it out. So how do I take all the parts of CBS and create a 24-hour channel of it But do it in 2014, not for cable news, but do it for digital streaming news. Mm -hmm. And so I I launched that in 2014, oversee that for a couple of years. They then bring me back to broadcast to oversee the CBS Evening News. Uh, So now we're in 2018. CBS Evening News launched in 1948. Like Harry Truman was president. You might know it is the show that Walter Cronkite once anchored. Mm -hmm. And then there was an era, you know, if you're a millennial or Giant Xer, you would remember Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings. Like, you know, the... Like, you got your news from one of them in the 80s or 90s. Um, So CBS Evening News, I take it over, I think, 75 years into its existence. I forget the number. um, And get to oversee that for uh, just under two years. And then in the summer of 2019, um, looking for a new challenge, go out on my own to uh, figure out uh, consulting, like how to bring the lessons of everything I've learned in journalism and news to other companies, storytelling, etc. And then COVID hits in 2020, um, I start to share basic information, curated information about what's happening with COVID for friends and family on Instagram. At the time, I have 500 followers. It's a private account. My wife like, this tells me this could be useful for more than our 500 friends and family. Mm. So I go public. And that account grows. Strangers start following. And suddenly I have 1,000. Then I have 5,000. and I have 10,000. And then the Jonas Brothers are promoting my account to their millions of followers. And I'm like, where, how did this happen? And I'm just applying the lessons of what I learned in journalism and news to my Instagram account. And now I am here talking to you today. And I have an Instagram account and a podcast and a newsletter and figuring out kind of how to translate what began as
1: a a COVID exercise to keep myself busy into a business. In summary, you're more than qualified to be doing what you're doing now. (laughs) um that yeah you've done some really incredible things and uh again the timely i'm so glad that you're one of those that turned the the lemons of the pandemic into really good lemonade because we we need what you're we need what you're making thanks to the jonas brothers for making your platform even bigger um but yeah i mean so so you go from private to public, you have 500 followers. That was one of my things as I was checking you out. I was like, okay, what, what did he do before? How did this happen? So you, you had some sort of a, you had something that people wanted, right? Because a lot of people are trying to do what you're doing. They're trying to kind of aggregate the news and they're trying to help people and their accounts just aren't doing it. And so again, before we get to some of these bigger questions here in the news and media, what was, brag on yourself for a second, like what was your, 2019, you go from, or 2019, 2020, I guess 2020, you go from private to public. You have just a few hundred followers, like most, like most people on Instagram, Yeah, like
0: most normal Instagram accounts. What
1: yeah. is your special sauce that made people begin to, cause somehow, okay, the Jonas brothers shared your shit and like now it's bigger, but like they had to see it somehow. Somebody right. shared it with them and somebody shared it to, you know, so like, what's your special sauce, Moshe?
0: Listen, I think Well, first of all, it's interesting because people are like, why do you go on Instagram? And I'm like, if I knew I was building a business, I probably wouldn't start on Instagram. But at that moment, I just, you know, Nick, I don't know how you feel about Twitter, but like Twitter is where I get a lot of my news, but I just felt like that place is just, you know, really nasty. And Instagram felt fresh. My Instagram account, by the way, as of, you know, 2020 was like people's normal Instagram account. Like a picture of me and my nephew, a picture of a sunset, you know, a really good brunch I had, you know, stuff people used to put on Instagram before it got all political. And this sort of coincided, like COVID and and especially Black Lives Matter, etc., coincided with like Instagram getting newsy, Instagram getting political. Um, Special Sauce, you know, part of what I I tried to do initially was was try to leverage the fact that it is a social media platform. You know, one of my frustrations with, you know, even as I was launching digital news properties at, at CBS, was that we were still replicating the old model we were still replicating that, like, we present the news and you watch the news. And, uh, you know, we might incorporate once in a while something you tweeted at us. Okay, great. What I tried to do on Instagram is, like, really, you know, pure engagement. Like, actually engage with my audience. And what I found very quickly, Nick, in the beginning, is that even covering COVID, suddenly somebody follows me, a stranger follows me, and she's like, I'm a nurse at a hospital. Let me tell you about what's happening with PPE. You mm. know, remember that whole storyline? Oh, yeah. Um, and then somebody... So, so I post it like, hey, this is an anecdote I have. You know, I, I I check her out. She's like, you know, here's my LinkedIn account. You know, like I work here legitimately. This is what's happening. Great. And then somebody replies to me, uh, hey, they need masks. I have a, I work for a distributor that has a connection to China uh, and I can get the masks. Uh, can you connect us? And so I'm trying to not only report the news but like connect people involved in the news and tell their stories. And I don't think that we still don't do that well in the in the mainstream media and that's what I I think I will attribute part of the success of the account to actually engaging with the audience. The the audience feels like I'm listening. You know, sometimes listen, I'm one person and I began doing this for COVID and then I started covering you know, old news around the world, right? You go to my account any given day and there's a business story and there's something from Iran and there's something from Ukraine and something from China. But, you know, there's a lot of things happening in the world. And then suddenly I'll hear five, you know, I'll get five DMs over an hour from people being like, hey, are you hearing this? Hey, can I see more coverage on this? Hey, here's a question I'm asking. And if I start to see trend lines, I'll post their question and be responsive to it. Like, hey, a bunch of you are asking X right now. I'm going to look into it for you. And so that, I think, is part of what makes this account unique and something that, it, you know, as we grow to multiple platforms, I want to preserve that. Uh, I don't want to fall back on on what the media is typically, which is, we read a lot of things. We're really smart and we're going to tell you what happens and we hope you like it. And if you stop watching what we're doing and you stop reading what we're doing, we're going to start to scare the hell out of you uh, with yep. really loud headlines to get you to come back. Yeah. And that's, where we live
1: today. Right. Yep. That is exactly where we live. I think one of the other things too, as I look at your account and look at what you've been doing and continue to do is it's not overly produced, right? Like a lot of, if you, if people go look at your feed, a lot of it is like a screen, you know, it's like a video screenshot of another, another social media post or whatever. And I think that resonates with people. Like, obviously I, I appreciate a well done video story, right? These now this stories, they're super well done and whatever. But they take a ton of time and money and energy, and I don't think that people view those videos differently than if it was just somebody taking a selfie, sharing a story, sharing their story, whatever it is, whatever the case may be, whatever news is happening in Iran and floods in Pakistan and in, in you know Puerto Rico underwater, whatever it is. I'm not sure people are used to seeing very simple content being made. I mean, I does that make sense? Like does does that? I, I,
0: A thousand percent. I think people get skeptical when things are overly slick and produced. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, whether you're talking about major media companies or you're talking about major, you know, corporations doing their advertising, they're used to very high production standards, very slick production standards. But we've reached an era here where what resonates with people, and by the way, there's data to back this up, that uh, people just want authenticity, Right? Like, yep. it's a green screen. I mean, you see a lot of videos now with green screen. They're like, hey, this is what's happening today. Like, let me tell you what's going on. Um, and, and then you have like, you know, probably like Procter & Gamble and like Pfizer and whatever, like trying to, re- they're like, I know that we have millions and millions of dollars to spend, but like, can we replicate that rawness? Um, and I think people want to have a conversation. They don't want to be spoken down to. They don't want to, you know, they 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 don't want to feel like someone's trying to sell them a bill of goods when something's really slick. And that now there's still a place for like really high production quality, absolutely. But I think when it comes to presenting information, you know, and part of this, by the way, Nick, is because like I'm not a talented graphic designer here, right. like you know, like yeah. that's very evident um, from my account. But I I try to um, prioritize speed um, and brevity um, over production quality sometimes. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that resonates because it, by the way, it's, those are my
1: core skills. Yeah, no, that's great. Okay. In the time we have left, let's talk about a few different uh, aspects of media and news so that we can help people, not just in the upcoming 2022 midterms here in the U S not the upcoming 2024, uh, you know, presidential election, which is bound to be a doozy, but just like every day, like the stories we hear. So you, you write in your, in your Instagram, you know, bio area you point out verified sources and if people get into your content they know that facts like like getting the facts you even mentioned it when you're talking to this nurse right at the ppp era in the beginning like you went you went to check out you didn't just take this person as well-meaning as they may be at their word i'm a nurse i do this i do that because a lot of people to get their agenda their point across their point made they might say those things. And then again, then a miss or disinformation story gets spread. So you go to check out the, as simple as going to check out their LinkedIn See, like, can I verify what they're saying is true? But the problem right now is that you can't just say, not you, I'm saying in general, we can't just say, I am a fact-based journalist storyteller because the right is saying they have the facts. The left is saying sure. they have the facts. The middle is saying they have the facts. Those that don't associate with any party are saying they have the facts. We, I mean, I literally, as I was, as I was thinking about our conversation coming up and I watched a couple of the debates over the weekend, both sides are saying they have the facts, right? Uh, 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 um, You have, you have one candidate looking at the other candidate saying, you have said on the record before that you are a police officer and that you've worked with the police. And then the other guy pulls out a. An honorary badge, one that means nothing other than we appreciate your work, and you know, we like you, right? And you have yeah. this and, the, and he's saying, "Nope, I am. I've worked with this." and you have this weird thing happen again, not that that hasn't happened before. It's probably always been a thing. But right now, because we have this immediacy of social media and this immediacy of seeing everything in real time, every single day we have two or more people saying, "I'm the fact-based person here, "No, I'm the one that has the facts." And they go back and forth. So help us in this 24-hour news cycle. Um, How do we get better at identifying, not just better, but quicker so that we don't spread bullshit? How do we get better at recognizing the facts?
0: Well, first of all, I would say that if you see a headline or see a story that immediately reinforces a worldview um, or uh, feels like it goes against everything you stand for. Mm. The truth is probably it's probably overplayed in some way, mm. or it might be missing context. And this is what I I'll I'll do sessions for uh, uh, kids in school, grade school, middle school, high school, uh, college students, etc. And say before you hit that share button, or before you comment, or before you like something, take a moment, take a moment to say, "Wow, that headline seems a little interesting." Um, or this headline I love, or this headline I hate. Um, Google News the headline, Google News keywords in that story, and just look very quickly at kind of you know Google News for the most part has some reliable stuff. I I don't love the way that they're allowing some of the content in that it comes from very unverified places. Sure. But you take a look and 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 what's the taste of the headlines? Um, from you know a dozen places, it takes a quick scroll. And yes, that's a little extra effort, but it does prevent the immediate spread of misinformation. You know, how many times have you heard from people like, well, like, you know, why did you share that? Like, that turned out to be... It felt true. It felt true. It felt right. It made me feel... So it's almost like taking a pause on your emotions. Wait, how did this story make me feel? Let me, let me check into this further. Um, you know, debates, as you're describing, are typically an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two-hour debates. When... I, as a reporter, was covering debates and still am. You got to pick headlines from a debate. A lot takes place at a debate, hmm. so the media will jump on a headline here or a dramatic moment there. Um, and so you'll search the debate, and there, there's probably a good half dozen to a dozen storylines come from the debate. Um, they might have discussed an issue that really resonated with you, but the issue that often gets covered is probably the most controversial thing or the you know uh, the loudest moment, literally, um, of the debate. And so that's important. Uh, there is a couple of resources out there that um, I suggest people turn to. Um, one and and one both of them help you understand the perspective of the organizations. One is called All Sides Media, and you can mm. go there, and they have a chart that shows you bluest to blue, rightest, uh, reddest to red, uh, for uh, media entities. Like does this. Do these stories tend to lean left? Do these stories tend to lean right? Do they tend to put more of the Democratic viewpoint? Do they put more of the conservative viewpoint? That's one. And that's just an X scale, right? Left to right. Then there's another uh, organization called Ad Fontes, A-D-F-O-N-T-E-S. And they have a media bias chart that has an X and a Y. X, again, from left to right. Y, least reliable to most reliable. Fascinating. And so, like, you go center top and then you're like, okay, here's a group of the most reliable media sources that tend to do the best job of exposing both sides. Now, no one is perfect, right? Like, And the same thing I'll tell people. like, In the same way that know, um, you know, if you you look at a group of, uh, you know, you hire a plumber, you could have a great plumber, you could have a bad plumber. You could have a great teacher, you could have a bad teacher. You could have a great journalist, you could have a bad journalist. But mm-hmm. it turns out that people in this day and age find some bad journalism and they're like, oh, the whole organization is terrible or all oh, well, of journalism is bad. I have to tell you that like any other person, like there's a bad cab driver who makes you nauseous the other cab ride here in New York City, and then you have good cab drivers, um, and. I would say that that applies to every profession out there. You get a second opinion when you go to the doctor and you get a diagnosis or you learn something. You get a second opinion. When you learn a piece of information, go get a second opinion. Go get perspective. And ultimately, you see a few headlines out there. The truth probably starts to be there. Now, there are times, yes, where the media gloms onto something and misses something. And there are signs of bias. We could certainly talk about various stories there. But I think that they, those are a couple of rules of thumb people need to use especially when it comes to politics. That's
1: super helpful. The well, my takeaway there is slow down. Yes. Slow down everyone. Don't feel the need to have to be the first one to tweet about something. To share it on Facebook, to share it on Instagram.
0: What do you win? I, I guess you Nothing. win points retweet points
1: cloud. Sure. Maybe? Sure. I mean I you think know. we I think we share things and I I've been I've been guilty of this. I want to share something the quickest so that I'm the first one that people see tweet about this or share about it. So they will share mine, not theirs, right? We're all trying to, you know, we're all trying to build our platforms and do our thing well, right? Yeah. But that is, again, that might work sometimes, but if we're the quickest to do it, I mean, I love that. I love and hate that feature on Twitter, right? Where if there's an article attached and you're about to retweet it, it says, and, and it knows you didn't click on it. Do you want to read this article first? Yeah. At first, when that first came out, I was like, genius. And I would go read the article. and now. I would say six out of 10, 7 out of 10 times when that pops up, because I've already made my mind up about what it is I want to share and what I want to say about it, mm-hmm. I will just click right past ignore, post the damn thing. Like I want you to post this. I'm I'm in charge here. Post this thing. And so yeah, just slowing down and recognizing that we have these resources out there, Ed Fontis, All Sides Media, we'll put those in the show notes. Um, we have these resources that can help us see, okay, if I just pause go and see who's sharing this why they're sharing it what their headlines are what the s- subtitles are who's writing it right because we even know that there are some journalists that are more I saw this like this is this is wild this is something that is happening now I guess the the did you see the Salt Lake Tribune they posted uh last evening or this morning and they posted a piece it was clearly an opinion piece but it was Mike Lee talking yes. about Mike Lee right you yeah. know and so We've got all these weird things happening where nowhere in the title, except for the very end, it says Mike Lee adds or something. You think it's somebody talking about Mike Lee. You think it's an endorsement of Mike Lee. And then you see that it's just a, it's a piece of Mike Lee talking about Mike Lee and how great of a conservative and consistent of a conservative he is. So we have to slow down. And also this is something that I want to ask you about facts. We already to talk about facts, but facts in that a fact isn't always black and white, right? Like there's nuance and there's context, right? We see a headline: a hundred people are arrested at a Black Lives Matter rally. Mm-hmm. There's so much context there that is needed before we start screaming about the cops or the people or the people that were quote-unquote rioting. Right? Who? who what, what? How was the first arrest made? Was, was there violence? Who provoked it? You know what I'm saying? Like why? Why is this thing? We need to ask a hundred questions. Before we land context ourselves, context
0: matters. You know, like I, my, my, uh, one of my parents' friends growing up used to love to tell people this was a joke. He did a dinner parties all the time. Like, you know, I finished second in my class. People were like, oh, that's impressive. He's like, there were two people in the class, right? I say that to mean like when you say hundred people arrested, right? Like, how many people were at the rally? Who was arrested? What position did they have? Was there a conflict before? You know, like that's where, like, again, before you retweet the headline or reshare the headline, what is the context of what's going on? You know, it was interesting. I was looking at, um, I was like scrolling through Twitter yesterday and somebody was, you know, taking issue with, I think the Daily Beast, which does some good coverage, but the Daily Beast had a headline about how this could be the worst variant of COVID yet. Then somebody took the time to look up that in the last six months, the Daily Beast has done nearly a dozen stories about every subvariant with extremely over the top headlines about how this could be the end of the world. And I'm like, oh, okay. The good context—I think it was almost all the same author. Um, I probably shouldn't be getting my COVID coverage from this particular reporter. Sure. Um, at the same time, you know, like I cover January sixth, and conservatives will come to me like, "Well, what happened to all the looters at Black Lives Matter?" And I was like, "Good question." What did happen to all those people? And I Googled around, and I'm like, oh, actually, there's been hundreds of them put in prison. Here are an example of headlines from across the country of people, you know, this one set fire in Minneapolis. They're doing serving two years. This person was convicted in Oregon, et cetera. And they're like, oh my god, I I didn't know about this. The national media has done a poor job of following up of what happened to the billions of dollars of damage uh, and destruction of property that took place um, two years ago, right? and, and, but that context matters. And then suddenly people who are like January 6th is just liberals going after whatever it's like, you know, and, and this feeling of unfairness, uh, well, actually the first thing they turn to is like, well, what about those riots in the summer 2020? It's like, well, by the way, two complete different things, but let's look into them. What, you know, has the judicial system has the legal system. Um, adjudicated those, you know, is law enforcement following up on those? And it turns out, and then so now suddenly they feel slightly better about January 6th because like, oh, like, I feel like the when the other side did their thing too. And again, I'm not comparing, you know, apples to apples here. This is completely different situations, but it just like follow-up is important. Context is important. History is important. Um, and, And no matter what, statistically speaking, when you see polls about the midterms and you see various stories about the midterms, what's the margin of error What's the history of this pollster? Um, when you see numbers about, like, a record number have registered to vote, well, what is that in context uh, in other midterm years? What is that in presidential years? And guess what? That's hard work. And so not all journalists do it. So unfortunately, you can read to the bottom of the story, which is what I tend to do, because sometimes the most interesting fact is buried between paragraphs 17 sure. and 27, right. which nobody gets to, right? right? Because by then, you have to register to for the newspaper, and you got to get a $1 a month subscription, and... People are like, oh, I'll move on. And context is buried there. Key questions are buried there. And that's a part of what I tried to elevate.
1: Last question. I would love for many more hours with you. Maybe we'll get a chance to do this again. But last question for today is I kind of want to focus on what what's the future like in media and news, specifically in news? Because is is it more Moshas uh starting their own platforms and and being and you know conducting themselves with integrity and patience and doing that hard work. Uh, Because I I don't see a world where, you know, the CBSs and the NBCs and the Foxes like actually make it as we go like super digital and really in in an era where anybody can make content really well, anybody can go viral if they hit the right nerve at the right time in the right demographic, right? And so I don't see a world where they actually last. I could be wrong. And so you're going to have younger people, right? It's no longer these old, older, you know, sort of like, uh, kind of figures that you mentioned the Walter Cronkite's like that, that do it all. You have younger people like you and many others. Uh, I, I saw you on Sharon McMahon, who was also on my podcast on, on her podcast. And she did a tremendous job through the pandemic, really doing similar things to what you're doing. And these are younger faces, younger people, younger energy. What is the future of news and media? Yeah, I would even just I, I wouldn't even just say younger. I would say just independent
0: operators, independent. right? Regardless yep. of age. Sure. That, you know, you have independent creators who um, have the opportunity now, given the technology that is available, right? Like Nick, you know, we're on your podcast. Yep. This, 15 years ago, wasn't possible. Nope. Um, you might have had a blog on BlockSpot or something, you know, like… The, you saw the beginnings of it. 20 years ago, none of this was possible. Um, you know, I like to remind kids when I talk to them in like, you know, high school, So I was like, when I was going, when I was in high school, when I was in college, there was no YouTube. There was no Facebook. Nope. There was no Twitter. There was none of this stuff. Cell phones were flip phones. There was no text messaging till my sophomore year of college. Like, your, your ability now to do whatever you want to create, I mean, and you see this among the younger generation on TikTok that have become superstars. TikTok, I think, We're all curious about their algorithm, but what it does uniquely is elevate individuals from no names to prominent. And Mm -hmm. I saw this analysis recently of all the various social media platforms and the top 10 accounts on all those platforms. And if you look at like the Instagrams and the Facebooks, it's like, you know, Kim Kardashian and Ronaldo, it's, it's, it's people that you would expect. Um, But then you look at like TikTok and, and a little bit on YouTube in the top 10, you might not recognize a few of those names. Nope. Yep. Right. And that's significant in this day and age. You don't need a major network backing. You know, there was a time in journalism, you know, as I was coming through it 15 years ago, that you needed to go work at a local affiliate or a local newspaper and move your way up or or start really junior at a national network and move your way up. Today, they're hiring people who have done a great job on Twitter or Instagram or, you know, uh, YouTube, being like, this person built their own following. We need to purchase them and bring them aboard. I think we're looking at, at least in the near future, like a hybrid, right? Those networks ain't going away. They're making billions of dollars. They're publicly traded companies. Um, But are they going to be able to maintain relevance? Um, No. It's this sort of like, you know, trickle down where there's, there's not three networks anymore. I mean, there's a time not so long ago, folks, where in the 90s, about 40 million Americans were watching one, 40 or 50 million Americans were watching one of the three evening news shows. Right. Seinfeld reruns were getting 35, 40 million people. Crazy. Now a network for a live broadcast, if they got five, six million people watching, that's a miracle. Huge. Um, And you used to cancel a show if it got less than 10 million people at CBS when I started there 10 years ago. I mean, that just shows you how everything is separated. So I think we're at the point now where there's a lot of independent People, entertainment, comedians. I mean, listen, there was a time where you needed to get on Saturday Night Live to go be successful in comedy. You don't need that anymore. Nope. You, start a, you start a social media channel and you go viral, you're getting your contract from there. Yep. You control yourself. You're your own editor. You're your own boss. Um, and so I think that the same thing in news. I think there's some hybrid approach. I think people have lost trust in the institutions. So they're looking for independent people where they're like, I trust your voice on this. Um, I feel I can connect with you. I feel that you're authentic. Um, I know you as a human being. You know, there was a time not so long ago where like, you know, you wear a suit and a tie and you separate yourself from the audience and I'm really important. You know nothing about me and I'm going to present to you information. And now it's like, well, who are you? What do you eat? What do you like? Um, And so I think that it's very hard, Nick, as we know, to predict the future. I think there's right. some hybrid model that exists. I think as they try to survive, the major networks will be looking to independent creators and trying to bring them aboard. And you'll continue to see that process as they're like, oh, this person has a really large following. Maybe it'll help us at our network. But there has to be a genuine embrace, I think, of the fundamental comparative advantage of the independent operator, which is, let them have it, let them keep their autonomy. And the good ones engage with their audience in a genuine way, and if the traditional operators can figure that out, I think there's a path to success for them. But also go to where people are. Yep. Go to the platforms they are. That's great. You know, like it, it felt funny to me in 2019 to be the Evening News being like, "Watch tonight live at 6:30. You're going to sit through four commercial breaks." You know, like we're in 2019 and we're like, "You need to watch the show live." Nobody, uh, nobody wants to do that get on the platforms they're on. You know, like, yes, there is a certain audience, a certain age that will still do that. But for the most part, like, you have to build your own, you know, platform, but also embrace the third-party platforms where people are. Like it or not, they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, they're on YouTube, they're on on these other things. And so put out your content there, you know, make sure you build your own platform as well because you're not completely um, at the will and whim of every third-party algorithm. But I think that there's been this democratization. And and by the way, I've been laying out the positives here, Nick. There's negatives, right? Sure. There are people with malicious intent um, who are seeking to push out disinformation on people for their own agenda. Alex Jones, you know, exhibit one, um, making hundreds of millions of dollars off of people. And this technology and these platforms have allowed people who are trying to do good in the world, but they've also allowed people who have just ambition for money and messing around with things and potentially worse, their own power, um, their own political goals. Um, These platforms have also opened the door to them. And so, you know, I think that that's not necessarily what Mark Zuckerberg was thinking about in his dorm room in 2004. I don't think it's Jack Dorsey was thinking about it when he was developing Twitter and tweeting about what he had for lunch. It wasn't what the guys at YouTube, when they launched YouTube, their first video is my day at the zoo or the people at TikTok who uh, initially started it as a kind of dance, you know, platform, you know, like dance videos, music videos. If you look at the history of every social media platform, the main platforms by which we get our information today, none of them intended to do news information. No, it was fun.
1: It was fun. It was fun. It was haphazard mindless. It was a diversion.
0: It was a diversion from reality. It was, you know, Instagram, like all these are to delight you as a distraction. And now the real world has entered all of them. And now they're like, crap. Yeah. How do we manage all of this? Do we block it? Do we block it arbitrarily? And no one's figured it out. And so then you've developed this whole, you know, like the, as we record this, there's a headline today that Kanye West is allegedly going to own Parler, which is by the way, like, where Alex Jones and a bunch of right-wingers uh, have gone to because they were kicked off of the other social media platforms. So you have this entire ecosystem that's developed. Um, and where that goes is unclear. Could it be really bad? Sure. Could it be totally fine? Absolutely. At the end of the day, if you're building one of these businesses, you have to have a market. You you know need to you know build clout and you need to hold on to your audience. And it's a challenge they all have. But that's sort of where we're at, right? There's bad actors. There's good actors. There's not much of a police force. These companies are policing themselves. And that's a very long answer to your question
1: of what is the future? No, it's a great answer. I think if if people, as we wrap up this conversation, if they listen to the whole of the conversation, all the advice you've given, I think it's a very good, and we didn't get to half the things I wanted to, but it's a very good framework to start with. For starters, because there are bad actors and good actors alike, and we don't necessarily know who those are sometimes, it it I'm the big the big takeaway I have is like slow down, Nick. Like slow down, do a little more actual, and I hate this. I hate the term do your own research, but like do your own research. And like we sounding like
0: uh, we're sounding like Joe Rogan here,
1: Yes, exactly. Stuff. like I yeah. but but it's true. We need to do our research so that we can find the stories that have integrity, the stories that are truth filled and share those. Um, and so lots of good stuff here. As we wrap up, uh, Moshe, what? obviously people can follow your Instagram and should every person listening should follow your Instagram. But like on top of that, what else are you putting out that everyday people that are giving a damn, that are wanting to make the world a better place? What can they participate in that you're doing?
0: Sure. So, um, as we speak here in, uh, October of 2022, uh, there is my Instagram account at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H, uh, launched a newsletter that comes out three days a week that we're looking to be taking daily very soon. Um, and th- there's a link in there off of, my, um, off of my Instagram account, off the main page of my inst- bio page of the Instagram account, but that's monews.bolton.com. I'm doing a daily podcast. So you can go check out the Mo News podcast, M-O space news. Um, and there I'm um, five days a week breaking down a dozen or so headlines that you know I think are interesting matter slash interesting for the day. Um, and then I'll have, at least for the newsletter and podcast, a weekly conversation with you know this week I have a deep dive into Iran. last week I spoke with uh, uh, two authors of a book about the future of the democratic process in this country. Um, so I try to do a deep dive into subject matter and slowly but surely trying to be on more platforms for people but that's sort of where things stand today uh, but Instagram is sort of your is sort of my um, the nuke the, the brain the, the main place where you will get 24/7 latest coverage, Uh, but, you know, you can begin your day with podcasts, et cetera. And part of this is also based on feedback. You know, I heard from enough people like, listen, I need a break from social media. One of the only reasons I'm on Instagram is because of your account. But can you please provide, you know, what you're doing? And I'm in the midst now, and hopefully in in early 2023, if you're listening to this podcast, then um, we'll have a full Mo News webpage that we'll be launching
1: soon. Amazing. Moshe Wanunu, thank you so much for joining us. This was really helpful. Um, You're amazing. Thank you, Nick. I, I look forward to uh, part two,
0: part three, depending on how many questions you have at some point.
1: I love it. All right. Friends and damn givers, thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with Moshe and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation, and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit com. Please share this episode with a friend, Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast, and please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is, as always, by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at helloletsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.